sorry, no, I've just I've got this mental image of Tobes cosplaying a grown up. It's okay. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to the very 92nd episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom which is coming to you on the 14th of September 2023. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have a bevy of letters of comment, a veritable feast. We're going to talk about them all. Dave Mansfield wrote in to tell us about how they use transcription for podcasts. And we did ask people to do that. So thank you, Dave. We then completely ignored it for a month. But, you know, that's professionalism. So basically, Dave says that he makes references to transcripts of Freakonomics when he's being a thought leader on his office intranet. So, you know, if, if we did transcripts, more people might quote us. Oh, no. I mean, I know how I used transcripts on podcasts which i don't know whether i said when we were talking about this which is that podcast transcripts are searchable so often i am searching for information and i discover that somebody has discussed the thing that i'm interested in on a podcast and i can read the transcript and if it looks exceptionally interesting i can also listen to the podcast obviously all of our episodes look exceptionally interesting that's the octothought guarantee but but not to a kind of google bot thing right because they're not indexing it but Google if Bot, if you're listening, write in. Um, Liz, any thoughts on Dave Mansfield? General trustworthiness, would you hire him for a job? I mean, I don't want anyone to uh, use our transcripts to become a thought leader. I would not recommend that as a, a method of becoming a thought leader. Uh, all we just say is cosplaying a thought leader. Well, I don't know. Are we thought leaders in science fiction fandom? I don't think we are. As far as I can tell, so I went to a thing on, I went to influencer training and and thought leading basically means putting opinions on the internet. Who knew? And I do that a lot. I think Liz is the thought leader. Gold leader. Yes, gold leader. I'll be gold leader. I'm Rogue Nine, which two people listening to this podcast will get the reference and one will not enjoy that he did. (laughs) The best kind of reference. I've just Googled that and I realise I, I realise what you mean. <laughs> um, there's a podcast called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs by Andrew Hickey. And I noticed when I was putting it in my podcast feed that it has the transcript of the entire episode in the show notes, which is really, I think, going above and beyond. <laughs> I just need to read the show notes. I don't need to listen to the podcast, although it is a podcast about, you know, rock music. So you do need to listen to the podcast. We also heard from Nick Hubble, who said he was listening sometime after the event, but he wanted to point out that we don't, we really don't want to see a transcript of the Clark Award jury conversation from the last year because, Nick reports, it was all in the eyes. And this is a friggin' wonderful mental image of just six, like, how many people are on the Clark panel? Five, six? Five, I think. Just all, like, gazing at each other meaningfully until they decide to give the award to uh, Venomous Lumpsucker. And I'm wondering how you convey ecological collapse with your eyes. It's like sad, a little tear rolling down one cheek. Uh, thank you very much, Nick. Duncan McGregor, also a Mastodon, says, The spoilery horn sounds way more like a didgeri-reddit, which might be a joke that works better in text, but I liked it. Thank you, Duncan. <laughs> Alison is... She laughed, and now she's wincing, and now she's chortling again. And I think she's genuinely very conflicted by that joke, Duncan, so well done. Quite. 
<laughs> um, and he also says he was not old enough to really notice O Superman when it came out, but he certainly la- laughed at Alison's joke in Octothorpe, so he's not sure if he's old or not. Age is in the mind, or in the references you get. On the subject of O's... Um, also, a, a small competition. Can anyone discern what the O was? Because it wasn't the O Superman bit that I used as the episode title. So if you can find the actual O's, I'll buy you a beer. Peter Sullivan um, tries to guess what the context will be for our episode titles before listening. And this time he was sure there was going to be a discussion of the merits of castling Queenside in chess, which is O-O-O in descriptive notation. Uh, and he wasn't sure why any of us would have especially truculent opinions on the topic. So, anyone, uh, Castle and Queenside on chess? Mm. Oh, that's... What, chess? Agreed. Yeah, chess, very complicated. Hard game for clever people, like Peter Sullivan. But thank you very much for writing in, Peter. Ersatz Culture wrote in um, and noted, one twist on the NetGalley thing is that to create an account, you have to pass a capture hosted by Google, and notes that might pose problems if you live in China. Which, um, yeah, interesting point. I had not considered. We we did not raise that. But yes, um, I will say I did apply for various um, NetGalley things. And I did get approved for all of them. But also in the thing, they were like, well, what kind of journalist are you? And I was like, I have a podcast which is nominated for a Hugo Award. So if... You are a gonzo journalist. That's another one for our older readers. Oh, interesting. They're like, um, whatchamacallim? Uh, Warren Ellis is Transmetropolitan. That's about gonzo journalism. But Hunter S. Thompson. Reference. Ah. For some reason, whenever anyone says someone's a gonzo journalist, I just imagine that they're a journalist with no trousers on, and I don't know why. Journalism without claims of objectivity, which is indeed all of podcasting. Yes. But I am wearing tra- well, I'm wearing shorts. I would be very interested, listeners, if any of you have applied to NetGalley who do not host a Hugo Award finalist podcast, how you got on, because I suspect my sample size may be skewed. Um, yeah, no, I've got my NetGalley stuff as well, I think, all of it. Um, I just have infinite numbers of books to read as well, because now I have a policy that if a book is sitting in paper or I'm trying to get it in paper from the library and it turns up on my Kobo for 99p, I just buy it for 99p on the grounds that it is more trouble to go and get it from the library than 99p's worth so i just have tons of reading i am i'm still not reading that fast um i've this might be prefiguring my pick but i've um i have finished all my prerequisite reading before i can start reading the hugo novels now yes no we will um we will come back to that later foreshadowing san juan san miguel also uh, wrote to us that Juan managed to check out a copy of the Cyberpunk 2077 graphic novel and can report that the version in the packet is the full version. Um, So if you were wondering, then now you know. Thank you very much, Juan, for writing in. I think that's a first-time writer, as I think is Nick. So hello, first-time people. SS Culture and Arthur Liu, who is one of the uh, co-editors who is nominated for... Uh, fanzine as part of the Journey Planet uh, big mind meld uh, have put up the fan writer and fanzine categories for download in both uh, Western countries and in China. Um, So if you do want to read, you know, writing by fans uh, when you vote in the Hugos, uh, you can do that and we will put a link to this in the show notes. Um, and, yeah, because Chengdu haven't put them online for some reason. I have got issues 
12 and 13, I think it is, of Zero Gravity, which is the Chinese fanzine that is nominated, or it's, that is a finalist for the Hugos. Um, it's in Chinese, but it's actually pretty... A machine translation is getting better, you know. It's I ran chunks of it through Google and, and found it perfectly readable and understandable. And as it was talking about um, stuff like the development of science fiction fandom in China, which is something I'm quite interested in, it was... It was all perfectly readable and interesting. So if that's something that interests you, I believe you can now go and get that from that link. And then Chris Garcia accepts the cage match with Abigail. Abigail has not responded, so we assume that she accepts tacitly. When we next run a convention, uh, we'll have this on the programme, obviously. Chris says he always knew it would end up with Abigail and him in a cage match. It was foretold in the ancient scrolls. It also comes up with lots of different options for Espanias podcast or Espanias uh, opinions podcast. Names could include Sheriff Don't Like It, She's Not Angry, Just Disappointed, and Opinions and Well Curated Swear Words. I'd like to see the non-explicit version of Espanias Opinions podcast. I, I mean, right. I mean, that's like I would I would like to see a world without war or famine, but neither of us are going to get those things. <laughs> It's in the edit, right? You'd have to edit it with lots of um, sound effects. How? So my favourite piece of fan art that anyone ever ever drew, which I'm very... Oh, no, I know. Is uh, Jason Shackett drew a doodle of Hispania, which is entitled Hispania at Rest. It is her sitting on a sofa and it is captioned, Shut the fuck up, asshole motherfuckers. And that is accurate. That is Hispania when she is zen. Uh, I love my wife very much. Um... Can we put that in the that art in the pod so that other people will understand that? Yes, I could dig it out. And also, Chris obviously writes in to say that he got the Oh Superman joke and then follows up with the story of the time he met Laurie Anderson. Yeah, no, I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Ah, I love it, Chris. Thank you very much. Chris has a very good anecdote stop. Well done. Erwin Hirsch wrote to us. Thank you, Erwin. Hi, Octothorpers. Uh, quick comment and slash or question on your latest podcast. Did John's wife really have a rant about the state of the field of science fiction? Did she really use those words or similar? Or is John verbaling her by applying that as a title? I asked because a rant about Hugo nominations and nominators and where her work is categorised isn't a comment on the state of science fiction. It's more like a comment on the bureaucracy that tends to beset awards. And now it's time for a segment I like to call Hispania's Opinion on the State of the Field of Science Fiction. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Jingle. Well, it absolutely is a comment on the state of the field because it's us and uh, nonsense people who shape it. So, yeah. Nonsense people. This yes. is Hispania, listeners. Hello. She's new. She's a guest. Now, I think we should say, hello, Hispania. You're a guest on our podcast. It's very exciting. Hello, Hispania. Hello. Yes, instead of shouting from the other room, I am shouting from inside the room. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, so we thought we would invite Hispania on because Alison pointed out that it is the Mumble Bumble anniversary of Con Francisco, which was the 1993 World Con. 30 years, man. 30, 30 years. years. Um, Con Francisco was my first US World Con, and I think it was Hispania's first convention, is that right? Yeah, it was. I was 18. It was my first convention ever. Uh, my first real brush with fandom. Wild. And um, the reason I thought about this is that File 770, who do need a shout out for this and a link, have just done a very detailed recap of Con Francisco, which include a lot of things, almost none of which I remember. 
My memories are deeply, deeply fragmentary, though hopefully when Espania talks about all the marvellous things about Con Francisco, which she will remember because it was her first convention, um, I will go, oh, yes, I remember that. But in fact, I went back and looked at Abigail Frost's review, which we'll also link to, in Ansible. And Abigail Frost, who could make eating a sandwich extremely interesting in fan writing and funny, manages to not find anything very interesting to say about Con Francisco. So I feel like it might not have been a sparkling Worldcon. It put me off US Worldcons for a very long time. Oof. So I remember... I remember it fragmentarily as well, because obviously I didn't know what I was doing in, well, in my life, obviously, but um, it's your first convention and there's a Worldcon and there's a lot going on. So there's tons I miss. I don't think I went to the Hugos, um, although I did go to the Masquerade. I remember it very exciting and very big and a lot going on and like, yay, 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 yay. But also like, I wouldn't have the perspective at the time and trying to back, you know, look back at it from the perspective of later world cons. Well, obviously the difference is I know what I'm doing and I know more people. And Do you know what you're doing? <laughs> I really didn't know what I was doing at Con Francisco. It was so different to my experience of conventions, even Conspiracy, which had been obviously a very big convention and a world con and in the UK. For listeners who don't know, Conspiracy was the 1987 Brighton world con. Brighton and San Francisco are very similar cities in many ways. Yes. But yeah, so so basically, I got to the, I, for those who don't know, I grew up in Spain. I was born and raised in Spain, and I moved to the States when I was 17. I knew about fandom because I'd read um, various anthologies where, like, you know, the, the, the introduction talks about, you know, whoever the editor is. It's like, oh, we're at a party at the, you know, whatever, Worldcon or whatever convention. So I knew that existed, and I very much wanted to have that. And at, at the time in Spain, there was no conventions, there was no nothing. Um, or what there was, was like up in, you know, real cities. So when I got to the States, there were, um, it was the very beginning of the like internet as we, or the, the web as, and stuff like that as we know it. And there was interconnected chat tables at various cafe, cafes in um, the city. So you could put like a quarter in and talk to people for 15 minutes. And the very first thing I typed into one of those machines, I found one of those machines, I put a quarter in, I was with my siblings for breakfast and I was like, okay, I'm going to go do this now. And I don't think I talked to them the rest of the day. And uh, the first thing I typed in was, is anybody going to Worldcon? Because I, I read in like FNSF or someplace like that, that there was, Worldcon was happening in the city. And I was like, oh, I'm very excited about this. Uh, nobody replied. But like later on, I found somebody who was in the SCA who was going to the Worldcon, who was like, oh, yeah, you should come along and all that. And who was, who knew about volunteering, which, you know, I think a lot of us agree is like the way to, if you're going into a convention for the first time, especially at Worldcon, is the way to do it. Um, so that's what I did. And I think he actually wanted to hook up with me. Um, I think that was the actual intent. But, you know, it was still a very fortunate uh, interaction. I, for one, can't believe that you met someone in an SF context who wanted to hook up with you. I know, right? Disgusting. I wish I could remember his SEA name. Spaniard would never hook up with anyone at Worldcom. So podcasting isn't great for um, pointed stares, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a lot of that. We met at a Worldcom listeners yes. and we're married. Yes. And there's a picture of you, which we will put in the episode, yes. of you at the San Francisco World Cup, which is adorable because you've got like a little crop top on, you're all excited. Yeah, so I remember, I still have that crop top someplace because I just can't get rid of it. I remember, so I worked around the corner, uh, the San Francisco Shopping Center is right around the corner from Moscone, which was the place that the convention was held. Um, and so, I, and in that same shopping center, there was a Ross Dress for Less, which is like the equivalent to like a TK Maxx or something. I don't know what, what you have. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so uh, I remember being like, I don't have anything to wear. Like, you know, I was 18 at the time. I wasn't going out much. The age of drinking in the States is 21. I didn't know anybody, etc. So I remember going to Ross, like, to find something that was like, I don't think I knew the concept of fanish dress, but, you know, something appropriate to, and I remember, it's very 90s, but I'm still very fond of it. It's a little crop top with, like, that sort of English lace, is it called? Whatever, with the little, like, you know, slightly lacy bits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, like, flare sleeves, and it was, yeah, it, um, dorky, but I, uh, I really loved that top so much. So, Alison also volunteered at Con Francisco. Yes. Somewhere there are photos, and by Thursday I will have found a photo and, and sent it to you of me at Con Francisco. I was, I already knew by the time I went to Con Francisco, I already knew that I was area head for information desk for Gla- for Glasgow in 1995. I'd, um, I'd worked on the information desk at um, Confiction in The Hague in, in 1990 and really, really enjoyed it. And so when people were grubbing around for people who'd like to do jobs for the forthcoming UK World Con, I was like, oh, I'd like to do your information desk. And because I knew I was going to Con Francisco, I was like, right, that's where I'll work. I'll work on InfoDesk. And um, people are always like, well, why do you, isn't isn't it a bit much doing InfoDesk, all that, like, essentially public facing work for the whole weekend? And I was like, at the time I was, um, I worked on a social security counter, so... Um, compared to working on a social security counter. Um, Information desk at conventions is the most fun ever because although people are, you know, a pain in the bum in exactly the same sort of way as they are in social security offices some of the time, you tend to get, you tend not to get desperate people who can't eat and need money um, (laughs) on information desks. I mean, sometimes you do, but not so. You can just point them at the con suite if you're at an American convention. I will say... As I was just, and Alison telling that anecdote was an interesting one because I wanted to go to the 2005 Worldcon. I would have been 16 and it would have been my first convention. My mum my mom and dad forbade it because they were like, what's your plan for like eating and stuff? I was like, I've got to stay at a hostel. And I'm just going to buy a lot of Weetabix and just eat Weetabix for the whole weekend, which listeners will realise like is, you know, very much on brand. Uh, and they were like, no, you can't possibly do that. But if I had lived in the States, it would have been a much easier sell because the con suite would have meant that that would have been food. Yeah. So I would have just needed to find a hospital and I would have been fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what did you what did you volunteer to do? So, yeah, so basically got there. Um, the the guy who presumably was trying to hook up with me uh, saw me in my glasses after, like, in my work uniform, etc. I worked at a cafe around, like I said, at the centre, etc. I was like, nope. Uh, but he did take the time to deposit me at, um, he didn't actually say no, but he said it with his eyes. Um, <laughs> so much worse. Yes. Uh, but deposited me at Con Ops and they, it was very exciting. Like I was, it was the park 55 and I was like there and there was like a lot of grownups like doing things and Fory Ackerman walked in. I'm like, I know who that is. And it was like, yes. Yeah. And they sent me to, I don't know if they like gave me a choice or whatnot, but they sent me to sales to members, which as you say, having like worked counter, in my case, that's not that dissimilar to working at a um, cafe, I guess. <laughs> Just retail. Yeah. So uh, the lady in charge of that was, um, became my friend for like, later on, she like took me to Bacon and stuff like that. Uh, Laurie Freeman at the time changed her name since. Has she changed it to Anderson? Because that would be pleasingly symmetrical. No. Boo. But yeah, anyway, so, so yes, yeah, so I worked sales members during the day. And then in the evening, I worked for Robbie. Um, who y'all know, uh, as a rover. Robbie Bourget? Yes, uh, Cantor at the time, I believe. Okay. 
so yeah, so I just like volunteered the entire weekend, day and night, um, and like commuted back and forth to the sunset, which is where I lived. Oh, no. So I, I volunteered in the day, but then when all that went up, I went filking in the evening. So I did a lot of filking at this convention. I saw, well, I don't know if we'll cut this, but like, sadly, she's, you know, controversial now. But I saw Leslie Fish um, play at, um, uh, that was my first experience of Filk. And I thought it was very good and very exciting because she is quite good. And like, again, it was a name that I knew. Uh, I don't even know why, but I, I, yeah. For listeners who don't know a lot about Filk, um, Leslie Fish was just an extraordinary Filk singer and composer um, who is... um, completely around the bend um in lots of ways and we i was involved in running the filk cons the early filk cons in the uk and i wasn't involved in 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 the first one particularly as a except as a gopher but um the first convention obviously invited leslie fish to be our guest of honor using a thing called the flying filk fund which still exists because obviously she was the world's most exciting filker and this is one of these things that are very famous in fandom now and she explained to us in the bar at that convention how she had smuggled her guitar, how she smuggled her gun in through customs into the UK. Oh no! And actually got the gun to show us, and we were all like, "What the fuck, woman?" And I think at that point we started to realise that we maybe not made the perfect choice in our in our guest of honour. And that was just a tiny part of how how absolutely bananas and outside of the general run of um, filking, Leslie Fish is, and even was in 1993, it was already quite a thing even then. So you, so hang on, so your at Con, Con Francisco uh, mm. job was smuggling guns through customs. Do I remember that right? A hundred percent. Okay, Yee-haw. cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to cut that out. <laughs> now we have the jingle, which is a Spaniard going, yee-haw. Which is a noise you've never made before in my presence, which which, is, which delights me. Um, Liz, how did you find Con Francisco? Um, well, I think as we mentioned by the way, I would have been 10 years old. I had not even contemplated that fandom was a thing yet. Probably hadn't even read very much science fiction at this point. Well, that's yeah. nice for you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, sorry, Espana. Come on, I'm old and John. What was your first US Worldcon, Liz? It would be Chicago 2012. Yeah. Mine was Reno in 2011. Yeah. And how did that go for you, John? Yeah, there was some there was some woman who kept trying to pick me up. But also, it was held in a casino and we were all drunk all the time. So nobody knew any better, John. Yeah, so, so one of the things about Con Francisco is that there were not a lot of drunk people around. Um this is a, another joke about someone who is no longer with us, which is that Abby Frost put in her at, reported Ansible that there was no bar in the Moscone. Um, Moscone is a huge conference centre. And Martin Hoare reported um, that he'd found the bar in the Moscone. And Dave Langford said, yes, but Martin Hoare could find the bar in the mosque, which I think is true. <laughs> so what was your experience of alcohol at San Francisco? All right. So again, I was 18 and drinking age in the States is 21. So I don't remember if I had anything to drink. Yeah. It was my introduction to parties. But again, as a rover, I don't know if I found that very valuable at the time, because obviously I didn't have any contrast. But obviously, in retrospect, that was great, right? Because if I had just, if I had not also been rovering, it's entirely possible that I would have gone to, um, you know, some evening events, because like there was some stuff happening, obviously, like the masquerade. But I might have just done sales to members all day and wandered around the convention and then gone home. But because I was rovering, rovering, 
I one of my jobs was going like along the parties and just making sure like everything was okay, and, which is a ridiculous responsibility for an eighteen-year-old at a first convention. But I was reasonably good at it. Uh, and one of my only experience that I could remember of alcohol was one of the few useful things I did was helping a extremely drunk fan um, get out of an elevator. That, that was the entire, entire thing. Just like, he could not get out of the elevator. I helped him get out of the elevator. And off we went into the night. And what is this cube? <laughs> yeah. Where am I? Well, and at the time I was like, maybe I should have done more than put him out in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> well, because at Reno, you insisted on walking me back home. Well, I you... learned from my mistakes. Yeah. So like you and Shaka... Uh, insisted that you accompany me from the Atlantis to the Pepper Mill, or maybe from the Pepper Mill to the Atlantis. Dag is fuzzy. And then you took a taxi back, but you were like outraged that I'd done the walk on my own. I was like, it's just over there, it's fine. You were like, no, you are tidy, we will protect you. Yep. Uh, so, yeah. So, back to San Francisco parties, because I'd been in fandom for quite a long time, and I'd been to two Worldcons, and at Worldcons I had party quite a lot, and people were like, oh, yes, but the parties are much better at US World Cons than they are at UK World Cons. They are. <laughs> and they are, they are, they are different. As, and often better, I mean, to be, I've been to some amazing parties at US World Cons, right? Um, but my entire experience with the parties at San Francisco was getting to the bottom of a very long elevator queue and going, oh, maybe I'll just go to the Filking. No, there is a bit of that. So I think I don't remember if that was a particular problem at that Worldcon or if that was or if I had just stuck with it, I would eventually have got to the front of that elevator queue and up to the party floor and to the parties. No, elevators at um, American conventions generally, that is your main sticking point. I don't I don't know if it's as much of a problem here I guess, but uh, yeah, it's always a thing. I remember Chicago, that being a thing. And I remember, even Reno, I remember going up and down the stairs a lot. I remember um, it being, the thing is, we don't have a lot of conventions here which are in big, like, hotel towers. The only one I can remember um, it being a problem was, was the uh, Mancunicon, which was in a big mm-hmm. tower. And I seem to recall that there were, like, you occasionally had to queue for an elevator, mm-hmm. but like there's nothing like the like Hyatt Regency in Chicago or anything where you've got like a massive old mm. tower thing even at world cons like cuz like Dublin had a, its fair share of problems with people and queuing but like there wasn't there was loads of escalators in that mm. main atrium right um cuz it's much squatter so where we do have lifts the problem is tends to be not that we ha- that you're forced to use the lift because the hotel is very tall it's normally that the lift breaks cuz it was installed in 1841 and is made entirely of string whatever they make things out of lifts out of a brass yeah oats oats so do we know if espana and allison cross paths at any point at con francisco and is it possible that when when allison fishes out her photos will allison be in the will like espana be in the background on one of your photos that's what i really want well this is what we want to find out I don't know that there'll be very many photos because the other thing about photography in 1993, people also forget, is that taking photographs inside was quite hard unless you had good kit, which I definitely didn't. Um, So I'm not sure how many interior photos I have. Well, presumably there's very little exterior because presumably it was uh, pissing it down the entire time and when it wasn't, it was fogging. I don't remember if it rained. I don't think it did. 
the weather was fine. That's the other thing about San Francisco is that the things I remember about that trip was the holiday, which was San Francisco, which was an amazing city to to just kind of knock around in. Yes. For a week, for a couple of weeks, which is, I mean, we, we made a couple of field trips out, but basically we stayed with fans outside of the convention. So we only had to pay for our nights in the hotel. The, the hotel was in the um, ANA, which is one of the nicest hotels I've ever stayed in. Yeah, the convention was spread out over over the Moscone, or not Moscone, Moscone South, I believe, uh, or North. I don't know. One half of the convention because uh, center, because the, the convention center had not been finished. Yeah, which yet. is how the why we'll it was, get we'll get yes. that. Oh gosh, yes, no, I remember lots of roadworks now that you mention it. Yes, and walking past enormous, you know, caverns of of excavation. So we were like in just half of it, which is even less than. The, nowadays because they've extended yeah. it to Moscone West but uh, so is that Park 55 was like operations I believe and then I think there's two other hotels there's at least one one other yeah. which is where the parties were so yeah there's a lot of like hustling back and forth um, which is I mean I guess Dublin had that but like yeah it's not yeah some conventions handle that better than others I don't know there's a way that they could have done it better as far as the geography well, I mean, and, and there, there's no other there will never I mean, it's vanishing and unlikely there will be another San Francisco Worldcon. So, um, like, you got to do what you got to do if you want to have the Worldcon yes. there, right? Like, no. And I got very lucky because San Francisco was then, and like two years later, there was an LA convention. I want to say, and yeah. then there was a San Jose one, and then there was another LA one, like relatively shortly together. So I got, I got the pure product. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get it cut with any of this like other nonsense no cutting it with anime or games i think we have a bunch of people who have had a whole load of european Worldcons on the trot um who are get, getting into fandom now and have had that experience of having multiple accessible Worldcons over the last few years so that's quite nice um i've just remembered something else critical about that which is that in the in the lobby of the hotel we were staying at there was a coffee cart and it was my first experience of you know all of the coffee we drink all of the time now um lattes and cappuccinos and americanos and all of them served from american style coffee carts and oh my god and i came back to britain going shit london needs this and if i had at that point gone london needs this i should immediately go and raise some money and opened well somebody did open <laughs> yeah, if you if you'd opened a chain of coffee shops L- listeners for those who don't know Alison is actually the CEO and co-founder <laughs> of Costa Coffee um <laughs> it, yeah no well Costa existed I think Costa existed one of them existed at the time but was crap so it was kind of it was kind of there was some but there was it, the, the the formula hadn't been properly developed at that point oh but it was so good i drank so much coffee <laughs> need to drink so much coffee because i got about two hours sleep a night if i was lucky <laughs> oh yeah no that is um that is a hundred percent true uh costa was founded in 1971 whoa yeah wasn't the same thing though huh no i mean i imagine it wasn't coffee roasteries existed yeah but the whole we are going to serve you um, hot frothy milk drinks with some coffee in in very large quantity to commuters fast that didn't exist that was the thing that that was just getting getting off the ground but yeah so world cons approve yay good thanks very much for coming on the podcast espania bye <clears throat> bye <laughs>
Do you, uh, well, I should ask, Liz, do you have anything else you want to say to Espania? Hi, Espania. Okay, so someone's written in the show notes that Glasgow's got a big organ. Which of you, which of you is responsible for this? And can you explain yourselves? Uh, I put that in the show notes because they're going to have the are going to have Interstellar with the uh, music played over it by the organist who recorded the soundtrack, who is an acclaimed pipe organist. Oh, that's great! Ooh, and they've got a pipe organ. Well, they're going to do it somewhere with a pipe organ. I don't think that is the SECC, but somewhere in Glasgow will have a pipe organ. No, I assume that's somewhere. That's supposed to be some fantastic pipe organ in Glasgow. Yeah, and the Interstellar soundtrack is great. If I listen to it quite a lot as my sort of background music and has some great organ music in. Yeah, and they're going to have that and uh, a talk about kind of how that came about and how the organist Roger Sayer, you know, got involved with being the organist on Interstellar. Um, so that sounds quite cool. That does sound quite cool. That that does sound excellent. When I've been to gigs, which I do go to sometimes, when a band plays to accompany a film, it's always been a silent movie because you think, well, how are they going to patch through the dialogue? My argument would be that, Chris Nolan, you already can't hear the dialogue, so why not whack an organ over the top? Is that helpful? A joke. I'm wrong. It's wrong. I'm wrong. It's just a performance of the score, not with the film. Sorry. Boo. <laughs> that is good. So it is just it is just an audio performance of the score rather than a thing patched through to the film. It sounds like it, yes. Listeners, if you want, download Interstellar onto your phone and attend that program item while watching the film. You will not irritate anybody when you do this. Better yet, take your VR headset and put your VR headset on and watch Interstellar on your VR headset whilst listening to the performance. That will work, will not irritate people and will be properly acephalal, though they will think you're a bit weird. But full disclosure, it will definitely irritate someone. I just don't know who. But if you'll be irritated, write in. Yeah, but they, they don't have, it's not, it's non-justifiable irritation because it is not irritating to sit quietly with a VR headset on in a way that it is incredibly annoying to sit quietly with a, t- a phone on during an audio performance. Glasgow have a rate rise at the end of September, and I am doing a um, panel for Glasgow Presents, which is uh, on the media of storytelling, print versus screen, and that will be on the 21st of September uh, 2023. We will put a link in the show notes. It starts at 7pm British time uh, and I will be moderating and the people appearing will be Dan Hanks, AM Justice, Jim McLeod and RWW Green. So if you're a fan of any of those people or a fan of the concept of storytelling, uh, do come along. If you're planning to be at the third Thursday Zoom that day, my recommendation is have a bunch of beer, come along and then heckle at me in the Zoom after. It's funny, that was my exact plan for that evening. Hey, great minds. You could tell everyone about the virtual Zoom. You could plug the virtual Zoom on your on your body bod, yeah, on your event. Yes, I will. I will indeed. Uh, I will promote it. I'll be like, Alison Scott's running an official after party. <laughs> Won't annoy anyone. All right, and now it's time for picks. Picks. I got a pick. I'm going to pick a book 
Hey, so you know how I said last time that I read a ton of books? Yeah, I'm going to pick another one of the books I read because it's good. Uh, thank you again to Neil Harrison for providing this book. Um, the book is Walking Practice by Dolky Min. and It was originally written in Korean and has been translated, translated by Victoria Caudle. Um, it's a short novel, maybe long novella, um, about uh, a shapeshifting alien who gets uh, stranded on Earth and uh, they have to hunt for food and their food is people. Um, and it's kind of all first person perspective of this shapeshifting alien who shapeshifts into different bodies and forms in order to essentially hunt humans, mostly through um, one night stands. Yeah, and it's kind of all about their psychology, the sort of the, the psychology of taking someone else's shape and what you take on. They, you know, they also, it's kind of an allegory for like sexuality and gender because they shape, shift their appearance and shift their sexuality according to what they need. And it's quite cleverly translated. The, there are what must have been quite difficult to translate kind of typographic effects to try and get through the state of mind of the alien. And yeah, it's just, it's quite quirky. It's quite fun. It is quite horrific. It is basically a, a novel in which you're following the protagonist around as they kill and eat people. Um, and I really enjoyed it. It doesn't feel like anything else I've read. And so I enjoyed it. Mm, nice. Okay, so I have been Hugo reading. And um, the thing about the Hugos this year is that the Hugo novels, one of them is the third in a set of four books and if you haven't read the previous two I'm not sure the third one will make any sense at all um, and if you have read the first two then and this is one of the things about Townsend Muir's novels the third one may not make that much sense but we're going to talk about that in our Hugo podcast but I've read um, Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth and I liked them both quite a lot so these are the lock two novels um i think we probably probably will talk about all three novels when we do it on the hugo episode so i won't talk about any more of that but i did two other prerequisites for the spare man by mary robinette cowell i went and watched the thin man which is a film from 1934 with i believe no genre elements at all unless you believe in a preternaturally cute dog um but it is a very funny film. It will only take you an hour and a half. Um, I would strongly recommend that. Um, it, The Spare Man has a set of a pair of married detectives that is a nod to um, Nick and Nora Charles in The Thin Man. The Thin Man was produced immediately after Prohibition. And this is something that you can see through the movie because everybody in this movie drinks constantly. I mean, not everybody, but, but the heroes drink constantly. And that's, I don't know, <laughs> it looks quite odd to, to modernise. Um, and I've had two takes on this, neither of which are original to me, but neither of which I can remember who said them first. So sorry. The first is, it is now extremely unusual to see a movie in which people are an American movie, certainly. I think it's slightly more common in British movies, but still not that common, where people are drinking and having fun, where where drinking is a thing that adults do for fun, rather than some kind of evidence of a character who is going into decline or some other disaster will befall them because of their alcoholism. Um, yeah, that, none of that happens here. They drink, it's fun, um, which is my experience of drink. And the other thing that I saw was it's quite unusual to have a movie where a mar where marriage is neither a goal nor an obstacle because the heroes of this 
film are a happily married couple who start off happily married, carry on being happily married and end the film happily married. Um, That's not any part of what the film is about. It is a detective story about a happily married couple who are happy. And it's very funny. Um, So that was the... um, so that was one prerequisite. And the other prerequisite was The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells, which is a novel which builds from Victorian adventure stories um, and has a adventure story where the island that our hero is cast away on um, turns out to have something nefarious going on and the plot of the novel is you, first of all, um, find out what is going on and learn about it. Then it all falls apart because, you know, you have to have a plot. It doesn't have a huge amount of plot, but that is the plot so far as it is. Um, it's really quite good for its age, I think. <laughs> this H.G. Wells, he was good at what he did. Who knew? So it is obviously Victorian with all of the things that that implies. And the plot is a little bit thin and some of the writing's a bit strange and some of the attitudes are a bit weird, but not as weird as a lot of Victorian writing. And I really enjoy that quite a lot as well. And that is the prerequisite for The Daughter of Dr. Moreau. But in that case, and in fact, I'm not sure in, I'm not sure I'd recommend doing either of these as prerequisites. So for, for Nona the Ninth, you do have to read the first two first. Don't bother reading this novel if you haven't read the first two. But for The Spare Man and The Daughter of Dr. Moreau, I think you're completely fine not to do the prerequisites. With The Daughter of Dr. Moreau, I think you'll get slightly more out of it. If you go back in time and read the Wells about three or four years ago, so you have read it, but it's not fresh in your mind. For The Spare Man, I think you should not probably not watch The Thin Man until after you've read The Spare Man. They don't have anything in common, um, but I just don't think it, I don't think having seen The Thin Man recently enhances that novel at all. Fair. I I was not intending to do the movie or the Wells as homework, um, uh, but hurrah that you did and can talk about it on the pod. And obviously I had already read the ninths uh, on account of um, previous years, Hugo Audrey McCollum's. Liz, you've read the ninths. Have you done the Wells or the movie? Nope, not doing any extra homework. Fair enough. I'm going to be hard pushed to read all the Hugo stuff before the actual Hugo voting deadline, so. I finished novel, but I haven't, I haven't finished the others yet. I'm going to pick a movie, and I'm going to pick a movie that has two versions. I'm going to talk about both of them a little bit. So I'm going to pick Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So the original of this movie was made in 1956, directed by Don Siegel, starring Kevin McCarthy and Dana Winter. And then the remake was 1978, directed by Philip Kaufman, starring uh, Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, and uh, a very young Jeff Goldblum and Leonard Nimoy. The cast in the... Both of them are very well cast. Obviously, the cast of the uh more recent remake is more recognizable to modern audiences leonard nimoy plays an excellent psychiatrist where you will genuinely have trouble with the question bad guy or mansplainer which is a great dichotomy to have in in your leonard nimoy character i will say so i like both movies they both kind of stand up i enjoyed both of them but the older one is a lot tighter um, the new one's like almost two hours long and the uh, the old one, the 50s one, is 80 minutes. And the new one doesn't really introduce enough extra to make the extra 40 minutes feel necessary or, or good. Um, and certainly the beginning of the movie has cinematography in it, which is actively distracting. Like, it's like, what were they going for with these shots? Like, I admire the effort to do something artistic, but it doesn't quite land. But 
it's frustrating because the cast are great like uh donald sutherland is amazing i didn't know he used to have brown curly hair i've only seen him in movies more recently where he does not have that uh, so that was very exciting uh, and jeff goldblum must be like in his early 20s he's stick thin and very young and it's nice to kind of just see him as a as a young boy and the donald sutherland and brooke adams have amazing chemistry unfortunately the pacing of the movie is very weird because there's just a lot of build-up of tension and then kind of nothing really happens for a little bit and so the tension doesn't really work for the movie whereas in the in the original the tension kind of builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and it's really well paced and the movie does a very good job with making you feel very uneasy so I think if I was going to recommend one of them, I'd recommend the original, the 1956 version. Um, but both are good. And, and as I say, the, the, the casting and the chemistry in the 78 version is amazing. Um, but we have just watched the 1978 version. Um, so, so yeah, I thought I would pick it. This is part of my going through the Time Out Top 100 list of science fiction films. These two are both on it, um, which is actually... Like for a, for a list that doesn't have Fury Road but does have Road Warrior, it's quite surprising that there's not many instances of like a film and its remake being on there. But this is one of them, and Solaris is one of them. I think it is. It is often true that older films are shorter. I mean, obviously there are long older films here and there, but a lot of films that would have been made in eighty or ninety minutes are now made in two hours fifteen minutes, and you think, well, maybe this could have been a tad tighter. You don't get the opportunity to see what the film would have been like if it had been tightly edited. But the old films were shorter because film was so, you know, film was very expensive, recording was, you know. Well, the uh, corollary to this is Solaris, which I mentioned, where I think the older of those two is like pushing three hours and the remake is like a tight two. And I haven't watched the one pushing three hours yet because every time I sit down to watch a movie and I see the runtime, I'm like, ah, I could do like literally anything else. That was the Old Thought Podcast, and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. I'm very excited. Because I get to see John all the time, but I don't get to see Espania, apart from when she kind of wafts in with, like, pancakes and coffee for you. So I do sometimes get to see Espania on a different Zoom, but um, it's nice to see Espania. Hello, Espania. Have you got your audio in yet, Espania? She's, she's, she's on her way. So no, then. We're going to share headphones. Oh, you're going to have one earbud left. It would eat, like, when I was uh, a kid and we used to share earbuds on a Walkman. This is like channeling 90s, well, 1983 rather than 1993. I'm going to do a letter of comment and then you're going to know how to respond. <laughs> That's why it looks so like I'm here. I am here under duress. <laughs> Espana isn't, um, whatchamacallit, Espana isn't angry yet. But when I, when I wind her up and let her go, that's when, <laughs> that's when she'll, that's when, she, that's when it would be good. Right? You could just be nice. How many episodes of Geek Girlcraft did you do? Oh, God. Okay. How many episodes of what? Because Spaniel was a podcaster before I was a podcaster. Yes. I used to do a crafting podcast with my friends in the Bay Area. Like You need to move that microphone so it is nearer Spaniel than you. I'm louder than you, basically. Hello.
<laughs> but also, the thing is, she will get louder. <laughs> so there is like a um, there is a balancing act here. Yeah. The theme music for this episode was Surf Shimmy by Kevin McLeod and Combatech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.